This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take a crash course in divine love by learning about mother love the thousands of moments tied up in recipes and hugs and binding up the bruises that happen in everyday life. When we speak with our guest, Barbara Mahaney, about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney. She's the author of Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. It's a new book that has just come out from Abingdon Press. We also spoke to her in an earlier episode about her book, Slowing Time. For many years, she was a columnist with the Chicago Tribune. She's a daily journalist and blogger, and she is a mother. Barbara Mahaney, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm so glad to have you here and have you back again on the show. There's a there's a passage from from near the end of your book Mother Prayer that I've asked you to read. It's just two paragraphs, but I I feel like it will really kind of put us in a place where the conversation can begin. So if you're willing, Beautiful. I'd love for you to read that now. This is from an essay called Turning 21: A Mother Was Born on a Birthing Deep Inside. My beautiful boy turns 21 the day after tomorrow, and while my hand-penned letter to him will be deeply private, the one I'm writing here is the one in which I proclaim how very deeply his birth birthed the depths of me, allowed at last the core of who I dreamed I could be, who I prayed I could be, to begin to take form, to emerge in light and shadow, to rise from the gauzy netherworld, to be defined in sharp outline and tender spots, and to be forming still. It just might be most every blessed mother's story. We stumble upon the best that we can be sometimes when living, breathing, squawking, ever-hungry babe is cradled in our arms, our trembling arms, to be sure, our arms that grow stronger, surer, over all the sagas and the chapters and the countless hours of two lives entwined. And that's Barbara Mahaney reading from her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. So I just want to say, Barbara, first of all, that this was an incredibly difficult book for me to read, and here's why. As I, as I kept going through these vignettes that you spun out about your trials and your moments of triumph in mothering, I kept tearing up. You know, I'm riding on the bus, and I'm weeping. I'm <laughs> sitting downstairs uh, in, in the lobby of our building, and I'm weeping. I'm, I was really touched by this book and, and the vulnerability that you showed, and also just the, the way in which you brought honestly 
the struggles and the triumphs of motherhood into the pages. And I just want to say, first of all, thank you, but also it was a heartrending book to read. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, I think. Thank you, and I'm sorry. Well, I mean it in the best best possible way. I I just asked you to, to read a passage about your son, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, your son is actually coming up on another birthday soon as well, yes? He is. I must have written that three years ago today, because the day after tomorrow, he turns 24. So our older son is 24, our younger son is 15, Will turned 16 this summer. So there were eight years between those two boys, but um, neither one came too easily. I suppose maybe in an Irish sort of way, I always hoped to become a mother. It was a prayer that was almost so deep, I wasn't sure if it would ever come true because I'm not one of those people who just expects life to come the way I want it to come. Sure. doesn't usually do that. My very first pregnancy, in fact, ended in an ectopic pregnancy. So, you know, right out of the gate, you know, when I found myself blessedly, miraculously pregnant, I just deeply immersed myself into the joy and glory of it and was as stunned and shocked as any mother would be to discover that that pregnancy was in real trouble and um, went in for emergency surgery and woke up. And the first thing I said to the nurse was, is my baby okay? And they're like, sorry, there's no baby and there's no fallopian tube. (laughs) Then um, the pregnancy about nine months later, I found out I was pregnant again after a few complications, um, that the pregnancy that that was Will, my soon-to-be 24-year-old, um, proceeded as beautifully as a pregnancy could proceed. And then it was three pregnancies between Will and Teddy ended in heartbreaking miscarriage. And then I could no longer get pregnant <laughs> once I was post 40. So little Teddy was born just shy of my 45th birthday. So Teddy's really the one who was profoundly unexpected and a delightful, I mean, more than delightful, a profound joy. The book is structured in what at first for me was sort of an odd way, Mm -hmm. because it moves somewhat chronologically through the stages of a young child's life and the experience of a young child's life as a mother, Mm -hmm. but it also occasionally takes a little detour and gives you a recipe. But it also it also has a, a series of reflections that come from birding and bird watching and right. and so there are all these things woven together and each of the vignettes is probably about seven hundred and fifty or a thousand words long not very long and mm-hmm. so just a couple of pages each and at first I was like well this is not going to go very deep at all and then I began to realize that as as I was going through essay by essay I was getting caught up in the chronology. And I was getting caught up in the little nuggets that you were giving me in these brief episodes. But then I was also thankful for these times to pause and reflect and think about cookies <laughs> or to think about beef stew. And, and I wonder sort of what was it that, that made that seem like the right sort of structure? And talk to me about the structure of the book, because it's a very fascinating structure. So the structure of the book began with the fact that there were, I had a stack of about 70 potential essays reflections on some moments of mothering. Often, more often, I would say, they're small moments that I just put under the magnifying lens and 
search for the depth within that small, quiet moment, which stems from a, a, a deep belief. As a journalist at the Chicago Tribune for 30 years, I was always telling other people's stories and came to believe that the stories, the quiet, quotidian moments that unfold on the home front held as much beauty and wisdom and depth as running around telling the stories of, you know, headline-grabbing people and happenings in the city of Chicago and around the Midwest. So I switched my focus or moved my focus beginning about 10 years ago to, you know, this was a writing practice that was a private writing practice. It was a writing practice that unfolded at home, and then I would go on and spend the rest of the day being a big city journalist. So I was using all the skills of a journalist, but I was applying those to these home front moments. And before I was a journalist, I was a pediatric oncology nurse. And so for formative years of my life, I thought I was going to spend my life taking care of patients. Eventually, I moved from thinking I would take care of adults to thinking I would take care of children. And the reason I was drawn to nursing and not medicine is because I believed in the whole person, the, the heart, the soul, the spirit, the social you know, socioeconomic setting, all of it. So I was always drawn to the interstitia of people's lives, to the all the little nooks and crannies that make us human beings. And then I became a journalist, and I had spent all these years paying attention to other people's stories. And so over the arc of time, I once I became a mother, I realized there was no more profound place in my life than my place in the trenches with my children. And these beautiful little people were handed to me, and they were mine to walk through life, through those tangled woods that are childhood and our adolescence and our early adulthood. So I just had this sense that there was so much to be deeply understood there. And that's twinned with, I guess, a sense, a little bit of a countercultural thread is that so often mothering is dismissed. Mm. So, you know, it was arranged thematically um, with, you know, kind of these, these overarching fundamental foundational essays and then looking at you know, the soul awakening of a young child. And so there are essays, um, you know, I because, so I started writing the essays when my younger son was five and my older one was 13. And since I'm still writing, you know, I've, I've covered an arc of time um, that begins with a five-year-old and continues on now, not in the book, but, you know, my older son is 24. So between the two of them, we've got a lot of mothering moments captured. Um, it is as prayerful to whisper words as it is to get up early on a cold winter morning and come down to the cook stove and be stirring the porridge for these children. And you put this sustenance in front of them and you send them on their way because there's so much of motherhood, mothering, in which we can't accompany our children through the struggles of their lives. All we can do is embolden them and, you know, sustain them in some form. And so... Um, Cooking and feeding is one of those ways, and you know there so much can be captured in a finely 
thought it doesn't even need to be super delicious, but in a in a thoughtfully prepared meal, in sitting down to a table that's set with intention. Um, so that's why recipes are in there. That's why birds are in there. And um, but the heart of the book is really these essays. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. We also spoke to Barbara Mahaney in an earlier episode about her book, Slowing Time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney. For many years, she was a columnist with the Chicago Tribune, and she is the author of the new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving, out from Abingdon Press. We also spoke to her in an earlier episode about her book, Slowing Time. So there's there's a point in the book where you're having a conversation with a cashier, mm-hmm. and she has difficulty getting pregnant, and she expresses this to you. And you go home and you put together quickly a makeshift altar, and I think you bring out some petals of flowers and a statue of Mary, and and there's a, a linen that your grandmother brought for you. All of those things, but you're trying to storm the battlements of heaven <laughs> on behalf of this person. And I got the, the sense at this moment that this is a moment of solidarity. This is a moment when you're striking out into the into the wild unknown saying, you know, my prayers have been answered in my own family. I want my prayers now to be answered for this woman's family. And that just really struck me as a, as a very communal gesture. And so I hear both the verb and the community in this. Am I, am I picking up on that correctly? I, I, yes, I didn't um, articulate quite that eloquently, but absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't get through this mothering thing were it not for the mother friends and the mothering souls and the wise compatriots who, from whom I've been learning, whether it's just watchful observation or flat-out deep instructional conversations. And that essay in particular, because I struggled for so many years thinking there would never be a sibling for our firstborn, I know full well the profound heartache and anguish and monthly crashing disappointment. Every month you go through this cycle of hope, 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 crash. And it's, there's compound interest in that anguish, and it gets worse each time because you get farther from the shorelines of hope. And so as a person who lives with her own heart wide open and who feels things so deeply, she was my friend at the checkout counter of the Jewel, and we often spilled into conversation Somehow she knew it was I was a safe person to share that with. 
And so as she was standing there sliding my milk and my eggs and probably my stalks of broccoli past her with tears in her eyes as she was telling me, of course I drove home from that grocery store just, you know, weeping myself. And I would try to move heaven and earth. What else can you do besides listen and listen and listen? And as I say in the essay, once you have entered into that sorority of uh, that sisterhood of anguish and waiting, the sisterhood of infertility, you sort of grow these extra antenna and you pick up, you know, the signs, you know, the heartbreak. And so, you know, I gently reach out to discover whether somebody I think might be in that trench is in that trench. And then I don't know any other way to get through life in other than um, open-heartedly going through it and being wholly willing to admit to everyone how deeply lost we often feel and uh, to search for wisdom um, through the angels and saints who surround us in the everyday and, you know, the God in them. You mentioned a moment ago driving home and weeping. And what I was also thinking of as I was reading that essay um, was... uh, a couple of passages from the Talmud where it mm. says that heaven, the gates of heaven, are never barred to tears. Mm. And I mentioned that, that that you pulled out a statue of Mary, but my mention of the Talmud also would have resonance for you and your family. Because Absolutely. as we discussed in, in our last conversation uh, a couple of years ago, you have chosen to raise your children both in a Catholic context and in a Jewish context. Your husband mm-hmm. is Jewish, you, you are lifelong Catholic. So this community that we're talking about is a community that is not only a community at the at the checkout counter, mm-hmm. but it's a community that extends into not one but two faith mm-hmm. communities. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. And so, um, again, I'm at least double blessed because I have two reservoirs in which to dip now. Um, I have all the Catholic, Christian thinkers, poets, spiritualists, mystics, and I have the Jewish thinkers, poets, mystics, rabbis. And as we have woven a really rich tapestry with Jewish and Catholic threads, and because I'm open to any religion's paths to God, although I seem to know Catholicism and Judaism better now than the others, you know, other other families who are either trying to weave both or even friends of mine in which both parents are Jewish or both parents are Catholic. I can speak their language and I've lived a life of, um, you know, in our family, a lot of our faith practice unfolds at home, which is a wisdom I think I've mostly gleaned from Judaism in which, you know, Shabbat. Is, is the holiest of the holy days, and it comes every week. <laughs> it comes every Friday night at sundown, you know, and, and God has very much been woven into our family life. So that's, yes, um, reaching out, um, joining arms with friends, Jewish and Catholic, Jewish or Catholic, is all part of our broad circle. So in the book, you are very transparent both about the joys of 
being a mother, but also some of the losses that you faced along the way. And mm-hmm. in this conversation, you mentioned an, an ectopic pregnancy. You also in the book mention a daughter that was stillborn due mm-hmm. to trisomy 13. Mm-hmm. As you're talking about these faith communities, I'm wondering both what the Catholic community and the Jewish community were able to give you in those moments of loss and grief that were similar, but also how they differed in their ways of supporting you in those horrible moments. And first of all, before we get into that question, mm-hmm. let me just say, I'm so sorry for the losses that, you, that you. you've, you've suffered. Um, I can't think of any particular institutional reaching out to us in any of those moments. It was more just a private, intimate, leaning into my own knowledge of the intimacy of God. In the case of our little girl, you know, it was three and a half, almost four months in the womb. So she was a tiny little, tiny little thing um, who I held in my hand for a little bit. My doctor gave us her little body, and we put her beautiful little body in a beautiful little box And privately, not with a priest or a rabbi, we knew somehow instinctively that we would bury her. And my father's buried in a cemetery in Lake Forest. And we drove up there, a cold, rainy March day. My mother, this is a a moment, a silhouette of my mother that says everything and that I'll never forget. On this cold, rainy day, my mother was standing there she, was, she got there before us. She was standing on my father's grave with her garden shovel and her boots. And she had dug a little hole, just a little grave. And she stepped away with our older son, Will, who was about 18 months at the time. So she stepped away with him and Blair and I together in our own religion, in our own vocabulary, our Jewish Catholic vocabulary, we privately buried her in that little box above my father's heart. And um, and then my mom also had brought some little bulbs that we could plant around the grave. So we, you know, left our little girl's body there and we, um, you know, planted these bulbs. And so... You know, my mom has always said to me, I grew up hearing my mom say, don't let the church get in the way of God. And so I think in many ways, um, I still lean into that, live that. So I didn't turn to a priest or a rabbi in that moment, but I was wholly enveloped by both of our religious traditions and the moment felt sacred and felt and there, there's several things that are locking together for me in this moment. And again, that's a very personal thing to share. Yeah. And I appreciate very much your trusting me by sharing that in this moment. You, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that part of being a mother is doing the best that you can in the moments when you can feed the porridge and those other things. And then you release and you hope that those things stick. Yeah. And what I'm hearing in what you just said is that even though the the official parents of our religions and even as a fellow catholic we call our priests father mm-hmm. you know so the mm-hmm. father in that sense wasn't there but the rhythms mm-hmm. the rhythms are there 
And in the same way that you release your children and you hope that the rhythms and the prayers that you've taught them stick, and you talk about this a lot in the book, about mm-hmm. about discovering that some of those rhythms have stuck with yeah. your own children, um, there's also these moments when you yourself, there was not official religion there, but it, the rhythms of the religion were there, the hopes, the, the assurances of the religion, it sounds like they were there in those moments. Is that fair to say? That's fair. Yeah, that's absolutely fair to say. And I think, you know, it's it's a little bit coloring outside the line. And just the the God I believe in is is so tender and so all-embracing. Um, I absolutely know that God smiled on that moment and that I didn't need to follow anybody's official rule book. If you're just joining us, This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. We also spoke to Barbara Mahaney in an earlier episode about her book, Slowing Time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey there, everybody. If you've been following my exploits, you realize that I have a great interest in faith and science issues. And that's why I'm happy to tell you about uh, some new friends that I've made, the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Now, why I'm excited about these folks is because every every semester, in the fall and the spring, they put on what they call an advanced discussion series or an advanced seminar, and they take some topic that is important in the world of science, and they put it through a lens where they bring both scientists and theologians and New Testament people and people that talk about the various aspects of religion to talk about that subject. And so this fall, they're going to be doing a series on cancer. I know, heavy subject, but um, they're going to look at cancer from all different angles. Some of those angles are going to be scientific, and they're going to bring in cutting-edge theologians and religious thinkers to also talk about it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that if you're in the Chicago area, you feel free to stop by. It's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago down here in my neighborhood in Hyde Park. That's the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. You really should check them out. They are awesome. Now, to find out more, go online to zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, we're having a conversation today with Barbara Mahaney, and we've spoken to her before about her book, Slowing Time. But today we're talking to her about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. Now, for many years, Barbara Mahaney was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. She has been a nurse and she is every day and in every way a writer. So there's a point in the book where you have a phrase that really jumped out to me. And it, it's from as you were just thinking about even the possibility of becoming pregnant, even the possibility of becoming a mother, and you, you, this phrase that you did not have faith in your body. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, I was so struck by that, and, and I'm struck by that partly because I have a seven-year-old daughter, and the other day, my wife and I uh, had this moment where our daughter said, you know, I, I don't want to untuck my shirt because it makes me look like I'm fat and I'm worried that I'm fat. And my daughter's seven. She has <gasps> she has so little 
I mean, she she runs everywhere. She's got so little body fat anyway. Just the fact that she's becoming concerned about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I flashed onto that as a father wow. uh, in the midst of hearing that you, this phrase, that you did not have faith in your body. There's so much in our culture that gets put on women about they're too fat, they're too thin, they're too pretty, they're not pretty enough, they're too sexy, they're not sexy enough. But to even think that there was a doubt about the possibility of your body doing what it was designed by God to do, I just want to explore that for a minute. Can you expand on that phrase that you didn't have faith That's in your painful. body? That's painful. Okay. That's painful. But um, yeah, I was one of those teenage girls who was um, struck by our cultural sharp judgments about girls becoming women and their bodies, I was subjected to all of those fears and doubts and self-criticisms. And so I had very little faith in my body. I had gotten really sick when I was in high school. I think I was just afraid that I wasn't sure my body would do what it was meant to do. And I was terrified. I mean, I I think the seed of all of it is just profound self-doubt, self-scrutiny, just a lasting concern that did I have the capacity, um, did my body have the capacity to grow a beautiful little human being? And there has never been a more redemptive moment in my life than 24 years ago when they handed me that little guy And it didn't take me more than a minute or two to flash down to see those budgy little thighs and go, oh, my God, never mind. He has a head and two arms and two legs. He's got pudgy thighs because that was was pretty much the point um, that I was afraid might not work. And the whole time he was – I was pregnant with him. I latched onto this crazy worry that, you know, he was going to be deficient in gray matter or something. So I, you know, called this dear friend of mine who happened to be a radiologist on a Sunday afternoon. I was like, Brad, you have to tell me, like, are they not telling me something? Or And he's like, barb, 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 you know, soft tissue doesn't show up in the same way as, you know. So, so I was just riddled with fears that, you know, because I had so little faith in my own body because I was fell victim to all those sociocultural, you know, I grew up in the age of um, Twiggy. You know, Twiggy was, I was a little too young for Twiggy, but she, she was, you know, out there in the cultural orbit, and I knew who she was, and I knew that really, really skinny was a cool thing. So I just had too little faith in my body, and that's a very real thing. It's a very real thing to, to not even think your physical self will be able to sustain. And maybe it was because, you know, the first pregnancy was ectopic and I was like, oh man, <laughs> oh man. Um, and then certainly along the road, um, I couldn't have been more surprised than to find out little Teddy was coming along, which is another story I tell in the book. I had a dream one night. I had a dream. I was, you know... On my way to 44, when I found, I was just about a month away from, less than a month away from turning 44, and I had a dream one night, and um, this woman in my dream, um, I've said it's sort of an enunciation sort of dream, (laughs) this woman in my dream just, you know, said to me in the dream, you are pregnant. 
And I remember elbowing my husband and kind of telling him in the middle of the night, but it was one of those blurry moments in which, you know, he didn't remember in the morning that I had, he probably thought it was a dream too and didn't want to tell me that he thought I said that. Um, so, um, yeah, along, you know, my, my body proved that this was going to be a hard road for me. This, the whole reproductive thing wasn't going to be slam dunk. And when we're talking about fears, there's a, a very poignant moment. And it's poignant for me for reasons that we can, we can talk about. But uh, there's this poignant moment in the book where you talk about uh, your son getting ready to get done. I think it's with kindergarten. And mm-hmm. he has this, this... But his reaction to it is he, he brings up like a helmet and a hockey stick <laughs> and some shoulder pads and some other things because he's going to fight the monsters. And goggles, I remember, yeah. too. He's going to fight these monsters. And I, that struck me because... Uh, it wasn't until I became a parent that I lost my fear of the dark. Um, I would watch scary movies and I would sit, you know, in graduate school at night and I'd pull the covers up because I was worried. But then when I had these children, hmm. I realized that no matter what I was afraid of in the dark, if if there was something that was coming to be threatening in this household, it was going to have to go through me. <laughs> and and I, I I think about the ways in which we defeat our fears and... You know, you just spoke very frankly and candidly about about fears about your own body. Um, also, as a creative person, you're a writer. I try and be a writer. I have constant self doubt that sits on my shoulder and screams in my ear. And and <clears throat> what I loved about that story that you tell about your son is that your son was able to find a very a very visible physical way to fight back against that fear mm-hmm. and how wonderful it would be if in those moments when we doubt our bodies or when we doubt our own ability to create, we could also put on the goggles and the helmet and get the hockey stick. Mm-hmm. But I wonder as adults, what would that look like? How, how, let me ask this question a different way. Mm-hmm. When those moments come to you, mm-hmm. when you have those moments of fear of self-doubt, what is the process that you use to, to beat back those monsters the way that your son armored up against his monsters? One of the important things is having honest conversations, listening closely, and understanding that all those people who look like they just have the brass ring, if you listen to them, they are riddled with as many fears, but they walk through them. And um, I was part of um, this freelance writer's group, what do you call it, a listserv for a while. And this wonderful, the sort of guru leader, not guru, but the leader of it, the the organizer of it, is a freelance writer in California. And he talks about, this is just in the writing realm, but it works metaphorically across life. Um, He talks about um, submitting freelance pieces to places and publications that scare the bahoozies out of you. And he talks about the thumb slam. And, you know, you write this piece, you have doubts about it maybe, maybe you think it's wonderful, maybe you're blessed and one of those people who just thinks what you write is beautiful and brilliant. I'm not one of those people. Um, And you sit there, you know, alone in front of your computer screen with your keyboard right there And you just take a deep breath and you just thumb slam. You just hit the send key and you send it off and you release it. 
And yes, you're fearful and doubtful, but you just do what needs to be done. And so you thumb slam and you send your piece to a place that you think will just reject you faster than, you know, anyone on the face of the earth has ever been rejected. Um, A few months ago, I thumb slammed a piece to the New York Times book review and they bought it and ran it. And it was in the, it was in the Sunday New York Times review, you know, book review. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, And I thumb slammed it. And, And it's so interesting as I was listening to you talking Um, The crazy thing about parenting, the beautiful thing, one of the beautiful things is you, who were afraid of the dark, became a parent, and then suddenly you say to yourself with 1,000% determination, if anything ever came between your child and some scary thing, you you would be there. And so parenting shows us how much capacity for courage we do have. And if we can stand up for our God-blessed child, maybe we can stand up for ourselves. So it's this, you know, this ongoing process of, it's the, the passage you asked me to read. We become the best that we could possibly ever have been beyond our imagination because along the road, there are all these lessons offered in our mothering, our fathering, our parenting. And if we could walk up to a scary baseball coach in defense of our child, then guess what? Maybe we could do it for ourselves. And we can come to understand that, um, you know, uh, we have the capacities to, to, to gently, certainly navigate even really tough terrain. But I also think that a really important piece of it is just really understanding, like, everybody's scared. Everybody's got fears. So your choice. You can walk through it or you can sit paralyzed by it. And I think plenty of us sit paralyzed by it long enough and painfully enough that we finally decide there must be another way to do this. And then we just do it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. We also spoke to Barbara Mahaney in an earlier episode about her book, Slowing Time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
If you're just joining us, we're having a conversation today with Barbara Mahaney, and we've spoken to her before about her book, Slowing Time. But today we're talking to her about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. Now, for many years, Barbara Mahaney was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. She has been a nurse, and she is every day and in every way a writer. There's one point in the book where you are talking about your reflections on these moments around, I think it's beef stew, but you, you're, you're reflecting on the, the Catholic notion of sacraments and sacramentals mm-hmm. and the, the notion of sort of holy consumption. And let me explain that, because mm-hmm. as, as fellow Catholics, um, there are moments when we are handed something that for all intents and purposes looks like a cracker, mm-hmm. and we're being told that this cracker is in some way the, the uh, instantiate Son of God there mm-hmm. before us. Um, and so Catholics are very good at uh, sort of putting a, a fence around certain types of food and certain types of consumption. Mm-hmm. This is holy consumption. Quakers, and I have some some time spent with Quaker communities, Quakers believe exactly the opposite. For them, any meal that's shared can be a communion experience, because mm-hmm. Quakers don't have an actual communion where someone hands them the wafer and says, this is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, between those two, since you were raised Catholic and, and you probably don't have much notion of, from your own personal experience, this uh, thing where everything can be sacramentary, I'm wondering if in, in one of the ways that you're, you're seeing the bridge here, would that be the rhythms of Judaism? Would that be the notion that in Judaism, every week you make your home a holy place? Mm-hmm. Uh, every week the bread becomes a way of blessing God, the wine becomes a way of blessing God. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just wondering about the balance of rhythms between, between a sort of um, fenced-off consumption and a more homebound consumption. And you even mentioned earlier in our conversation how much of your own personal liturgical life is tied up in your home. I'm not Quaker, but I have been drawn to learning um, I have friends who are Quaker. I mean, again, the thing that kept resonating as I was listening to you was, you know, just this whole idea of I just don't believe in coloring inside the lines. <laughs> and so, and I deeply, profoundly believe, and this is Ignatian, you know, God is in all things. And so I certainly don't think my beef stew has, <laughs> has any aspect of Catholic communion, Eucharist, per se. And And in one of the essays... I'm not talking about the food per se being the sacramental element, but the the laying of a beautiful table, the whole process as a sacramental offering, twinned with a belief that stitching the beautiful, the sacred into everything is the aim for which I reach. And if it's walking out my back door and cutting a few beautiful blooms and putting them in an old mason jar, I think I learned from the Catholic Church, again, it's just that wordless way of saying to someone, you matter enough, this meal matters enough, this coming together to the table matters enough, that even if I zapped it in the microwave, I might still try to make it beautiful. And this, it's just a way of, of making this holy time. The one thing that I didn't see a lot of in the book, I didn't see a lot of anger, but as as a parent myself, I am constantly faced with with the moments when I lose it, when I'm when I'm not at my best, 
when I'm, I'm struggling. And I try and be very transparent with my children about my own struggles with those moments about, okay, I got mad. I shouldn't have gotten mad. You, you chose not to put so much of that into mother prayer. Mm-hmm. And I know it must be there, mm-hmm. but sort of tell me about the editing process of, you know, how, how those things come in and don't come in to your, to your self-disclosure about hmm. your, your process of mothering. I didn't, certainly didn't consciously leave anything out. <laughs> the, well, the only, the only conscious thing is um, my husband, who is something of a public figure, he's the Chicago Tribune's longtime architecture critic. He's something of a public figure. And so when I write about the private realm, we have an unspoken pact that I am not going to tread all over his terrain and I'm not going to talk about his parenting or his, these are my reflections on mothering my interactions with my children. So I did, I do uh, intentionally not write a lot about him. But the one place I do specifically mention him is um, he has very much been my teacher in the realm of patience and tenderness and um, patience in particular. I think I grew up with an impatient mom. There were five kids in my family, and, you know, she had to be, she had to crack the whip a little bit to get us rolling, rolling, rolling. Maybe it's the blessing of having two boys eight years apart, so I've sort of been the mother of an only child twice. I have worked really hard on the patience piece. I am not a person who explodes in life. That's just not how I deal with being angry or frustrated or whatever. When I get frustrated, I probably tell the boys, you know, like 900 times, it's time to go to bed. It's time. We got to get going. We got to get going. Did you do your homework? Did you study for your test? Or da, 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 da. But it's not, it's not with an explosive kind of voice. Maybe it just didn't capture my imagination. I'm not sure. The other thing would be that, you know, I, I wrote these essays in real time. I was capturing these kind of fleeting moments along the lines of mothering across the years. And I, when I would sit down each morning to write, I was writing about whatever most captured my imagination. And because I'm focusing so hard on being empathetic to what's propelling the boys, um, because I'm something of their safe harbor in the world, I find it fairly effortless to not erupt in anger because I so deeply want that ebb and flow of heart to sustain us. Oftentimes, as I come to the conclusion of an, of an interview, I'll ask my guest what it is that gives them hope. And I believe when we last spoke, I asked you that question. So I won't ask you that question in that particular way again. I'll ask it instead in a different way. What do you hope for your children, for your two sons? Mm tears in my eyes. The hope I have for them, one prayer is answered and is answered every day in that they have each other and they have just this deeply innate sense of how blessed they are to have each other. I hope for health. I hope for peace of mind and heart. I hope they find someones in their lives to wrap them in the kind of love they've grown up with. And I hope they both find their, find ways to use their best gifts to make this a far better world because it needs it. 
Barbara Mahaney, I always love talking to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. So we've been speaking today with Barbara Mahaney about her new book, Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving. It's out from Abingdon Press. We've spoken to her in the past about her book, Slowing Time. Barbara Mahaney was for many years a columnist with the Chicago Tribune. She was also a a nurse, but she is always and in every way a writer. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Edison engineered the show, and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.